Well, thank you all for coming this evening. It's a joy to be with you. I would invite you to um, open to Psalm 80. We will center ourselves there tonight. And as you're turning there, I want to relate to you an illustration that I read in one of Tim Keller's books, in his book, Making Sense of God, which if you haven't read that book, I would commend it to you. I think it's a great, a great uh, uh, diagnosis of where people are in our culture, and, and it's a wonderful kind of exposition of um, the objections that people have to Christianity and then answering those objections. And one of the chapters in that book deals with hope. And he uses this illustration. He says, um, imagine that you had two ladies and they have the same education level and they have the same job skills and you're going to put them at the same job. And they're going to be in the same room. It's, it's so same temperature, you know, same ventilation, same windows. Everything, is, everything about the room and the job that they're doing is the same. And their job is to take item A and put it into slot B over and over, all day long, eight hours a day, five days a week. And one of these ladies, you're going to pay $30,000 a year. And the other lady, you're going to pay $30 million a year. You can imagine a conversation that might happen between them. The first lady who's making $30,000, after, let's say, six or eight months, she might begin to say to her colleague, don't you think this job is tedious? Aren't you bored with this? To which her colleague, who's going to make far more money, might reply, not at all. I, I think this is a joy. In fact, I whistle while I work. You know, so what's driving that, what the difference between those two ladies is the hope, the hope that the one lady has in the, the almost inconceivably great reward. And what Psalm 80 is about is, is dealing with the present, the, the difficulties of life, the afflictions that we deal with in light of the hope that we have. And we have a hope that goes so far beyond being paid $30 million for a year's work that it, we can't even begin to get our brains around how good it's going to be. Uh, to be in a new heaven and new earth, in a glorified body, fully equipped and able to enjoy the glory of God in all its splendor and majesty forever. We, we can't even begin to get our minds around this. And, and another thing that, that um, Keller does in that chapter that I think is really helpful is he talks about this, this, uh, this scholar who did a study of American history. And, and in the history of this country, at the beginning, when, when it was largely Puritans and Christians who were coming over, you had, you had a large population of, of Christians. And at that time, if you had sort of surveyed the hope of the general population, many of them were believers, and many of them would have articulated biblical hope, a hope in... New heavens and new earth, resurrected body, presence of God, new Jerusalem, everything that the Bible sets forth for us. But then as the years went by, and as the percentage of Christian, Christians in the culture began to retract, the hope began to retract. And this whole thing about civil religion, it's like, it's like what people did was they took the hopes that are in the Bible... And they, they reduced them down to the hopes for America to be the greatest nation on earth. And so you had this, this period of time in which Americans were hoping in America, 
to be a great nation. And, and that was also defining what it looked like for someone to be sacrificial. So you would do your duty for the country. You would do your duty for your, your community or your neighborhood, maybe your state even. But, but your hope is directly related to your understanding of your life. And what's happened to us now with this rise of, of postmodernism is our hopes have retracted even further from first God to then the nation. Now it's just down to my little individual life. And as a result of that, there's, there's more and more of an attitude that says, I'm living for me and I'm living for now. And so things like self-sacrifice for a greater cause or uh, a, an attempt to delay immediate gratification for a grander achievement or a grander uh, promise of, of joy that awaits us in the future, that is farther and farther from the immediate consciousness of our, our contemporaries. Uh, as we approach Psalm 80, we're, we're approaching a psalm that deals with, as I said a moment ago, the, the, the conflict between the grand hope and the difficulties of life. So um, back when I, when I was preaching through the psalms, um, as I was, what my practice would be, and, and we still do this, uh, my practice would be with our family in the evenings before in the lead up to the Sunday when I would preach this psalm, um, I would read the, this passage to our kids each night. And as we read this passage, after about the second or third time of doing this, so you know Monday night we would read Psalm 80 as, as we approach next Sunday, and now we're, we're doing this with Romans, but as we were in this psalm, psalm, after about the second or third night, I said, all right, guys, I want you to count the number of times you hear these words, and they're the words of verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And so, you know, my kids, it sort of locks them in. You give them a task to do. They listen closely, and they count. And this is going to happen three times in this, in this psalm. So you see it in verse 3, and then you see it again in verse 7, and then there's a similar statement in verse 14, but it's not the same. And then finally in verse 19. And those statements, they really, they really mark the conclusion of each section in, in Psalm 80. So look with me, if you will, at Psalm 80. This is a psalm that's addressed to the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And, and uh, just as... As a, a note here, uh, I would draw your attention to the fact that Psalms 73 through 83 are all psalms of this guy Asaph. And um, um, if you've read Chronicles lately, you, you may have come across this statement over in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, which tells us that Hezekiah the king... And the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of Asaph, I'm sorry, with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So this is telling us that in Chronicles, in Hezekiah's day, they're already using the Psalms of David and the Psalms of Asaph, probably Psalms 73 through 83, in, in the worship of God. So, so they're incorporating these Psalms already in Hezekiah's day into the worship of God. Uh, verse 1. Asaph prays, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. 
Uh, this is interesting. Look at, um, look at the, one of the last statements of Psalm 79. Look at 79.13. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. So Psalm 80 is linked up to 79 by the, the reference to the Lord as shepherd and the reference to the people as the sheep of the pasture in 79.13. And then there, there are also broader connections through this section so look back at 78, um, verse 70, where, where the, the text says, he, sh- he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. So the king is God's shepherd over God's people. And yet the Lord is the ultimate shepherd. The God of Israel is the ultimate shepherd. Uh, there's another reference along these lines in 77 verse 20. The, the last, last line of, of chapter 77. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So this idea that, that the people are like a flock, it really, it's like a theme through these Psalms, 77, 8, and 9, and, and now Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Now, what's interesting about this is that this psalmist, Asaph, in verse 2, he's going to refer to Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. And when you, when you sort of step back from this and think about it, what he's done is he's given you the, init- the initial part of the genealogy that, that descends from Jacob. Jacob got his name changed to Israel. Verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. And then uh, you who lead Joseph, well, Joseph was one of uh, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel's sons. And then um, Benjamin in verse 2 was Joseph's brother. And Ephraim and Manasseh in verse 2 were Joseph's sons. And, and this is going to be significant for this psalm. So look at, look at what he says here in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before we think about what this means for God to shine forth, uh, let's think about what it is for him to be enthroned upon the cherubim. Uh, you may remember that in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, there you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is referred to as God's footstool. And then there are these cherubim, and, and there are two of them, one on each side of the Ark, and, and one wing touches the wall and the other wing touches the wing of the other cherubim so they kind of overshadow the ark of the covenant and then the ark is referred to as god's footstool and the idea is that god his throne is above that and then his feet rest on the ark so the psalmist asaph is calling on the lord to hear and then he's describing the lord as he envisions the lord there enthroned in the holy of holies and he's calling on him to shine Forth, So he wants God's glory to radiate out from his throne that is in this sort of symbolic uh, depiction. God's throne is in the Holy of Holies and he's calling on the Lord to cause his glory to shine out from the tabernacle. And really, in a sense, this is what Israel was all about. Israel was to be a, a nation centered on the dwelling place of God. And then God's glory was to radiate out from there until all the dry lands were covered with God's glory like the waters cover the sea. 
Verse 2, before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Now, I think there's a hint of what in particular the psalmist has in mind in these names. Um, so, and, and this hint is going to, I think, is going to be confirmed as we work our way through the psalm and as we get to the end of the psalm. But here, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that you have uh, Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, and then Joseph, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin. Look at, look at Psalm 78, verse 67, where this same psalmist, Asaph, says he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. And, and so he's talking in the choice of Judah, he's talking about the choice of of the tribe of Judah from which the king would come. So I think this indicates that in Psalm 80 verses 1 and 2, when he's asking God to shine forth and stir up his might and come to save his people, what, he, what he's in particular asking for is for God to empower the Messiah. He wants the king from David's line to be exalted so that, so that he can, as we see in, in uh, 7870, uh, 70 and 71, he can shepherd God's people. So he's asking God, the shepherd of God's people, I contend, to bring, to empower and bring up the Messiah so that the Messiah can shepherd God's people. And that brings us to verse 3, where Asaph prays, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's think about this first phrase, Restore us, O God. We didn't read Psalm 79 in its entirety, but if we were to go study that psalm, we would see that in the first four verses, Asaph is describing what looks like an attack on the temple by foreign nations. So it looks like a foreign power has invaded the land, and they've come in, and they've, it says in verse 1, they've laid Jerusalem in ruins. Verse 2, they've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. Um, it, and, and, and then um, it, it goes on to talk about the way that, that the temple was, was defiled. Uh, verse 1, it says, they have defiled your holy temple. So I think that's the context in which we're to understand this plea in Psalm 80. Restore us, O God. Restore us, renew our power, uh, raise up our Messiah, make it so that we can fight off our enemies Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. This language of, of God's face shining recalls what we looked at last night in Psalm 34, those who look to him are radiant, which also recalls Exodus 34, Moses seeing the Lord and his face shining. And it also, I think, uh, recalls number 6, 24 through, 30, uh, 24 through 26, the Aaronic blessing, um, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So Asaph is in a situation where even though he has these remarkable promises of God, promises that God's king is going to reign over all the earth, promises that God's righteous character is at last going to be established as the way of life for all people everywhere, and yet it's not that way in his experience. 
the way it is in his experience is God's people are so disobedient that God has brought enemy nations as judgment upon them so that the temple has been defiled and so that God's people have been killed. And now Asaph is crying out that the Lord would raise up the Messiah and restore the people and cause his face to shine. And I submit to you that we can pray the same way. We're people that that share the same hope that that, uh, Asaph has. We We have a common hope. And we, like Asaph, we know that our Messiah is going to reign over all the earth. But like Asaph, we look around and it doesn't always seem that God's people are triumphant like we would expect them to be. It doesn't always seem that things are going for God's people the way we would want them to go. And we can pray exactly as Asaph does. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So these first three verses... Asaph is really calling for God to shine forth. And when God shines forth, God's people will prosper. And then in verses 4 through 7, Asaph takes another step forward in his prayer here. So in verse 4, he says, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Again, here, I think he has the context of Psalm 79 in view. So in Psalm 79, the the temple has been ravaged. The people have been slain. And Asaph, he knows how things are going to turn out. So the question is not, the question is not, God, are you going to keep your promises? The question is only when. How long is it going to be? that we are going to suffer under your displeasure. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Um, recently, I was, I was playing basketball with my, my kids on a Friday. This was a couple of years ago now. And um, at that time, my children were even smaller than they are. I'm still taller than all of them. Um, and so, you know, a shot went up, and I could see that shot's not going to go into the basket. And I thought to myself, this is going to be an easy rebound to get. But when I jumped, I came down on one of the kid's foots. And my ankle rolled. My foot rolled over. And, and uh, thankfully, I didn't hear any pops. But it felt like the bones in my ankle were just grinding on one another. And then I collapsed to the floor, you know, and I'm moaning in pain. And immediately, my ankle swells up, you know, and it's this huge knot down there. And I can barely walk. This happened on Friday. I got ice on it, I, started, I took some ibuprofen, uh, I rested on Saturday. I could walk on Sunday. I could walk on Sunday. And, and, and what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate by talking about this is life is painful. Life is often painful. But the pain is not going to last forever. In conjunction with that, that illustration, um, I was once with a group of, of of, of friends, and we were talking about a particular situation that we weren't terribly happy with, and somebody said, well, how long is it going to last? And I was like, well, it's, it's going to be in over, in, this was like in September, and, and I said, well, I think it's going to end in December. And the guy's response was, we could stand on our heads till then. You know, it's like, we can endure this. We can endure this. And, and this question, how long, it has an answer. The answer is, until the Lord is pleased 
to make all things new. And that making of all things new, the, the Bible's claim is that making of all things new, that wiping away of all tears is going to be so grand and so glorious that all the pain will seem like a Friday to Sunday sprained ankle. All the pain will seem like something that we had to stand on our heads from September to December to endure. I mean, again, this is why Paul says things like the glory to be revealed to us is not worth comparing. I'm sorry, the the, the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. But in the midst of it, it's entirely appropriate to cry out how long. We, we have an inspired biblical author. I'm always comforted by things like this. We have an inspired biblical author who is crying out how long. It's not pleasant to be in the midst of the pain as it's happening. And again, I think we should, we should take what Asaph does here as a model for our own spiritual lives and cry out to the Lord this way. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. It's as though our, our anguish over what we're enduring is all that we have to sustain ourselves. It's empty food. And, and Asaph, he's really, I think what he's really doing when he says, you have fed your people with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure, I think he's trying to activate the compassion of the Lord. I think the, the, the underlying assumption here is God loves his people. God doesn't want his people to suffer. And so Asaph is drawing the Lord's attention to the suffering as if to say, Lord, don't you want to look and don't you want to feel your people's pain and don't you want to turn and relent and show mercy to us? How long will you be angry? And then we we come again to this this prayer in verse seven, which repeats verse three, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. So we get a, a plea for God to shine forth in verses 1 through 3. And then the question, how long, is, is sort of the, the dominant idea, I think, in verses 4 through 7. And now in verses 8 through 14, we come to a new question. But before we get to the question, we're going to get a little bit of a review of Israel's history done in symbolic terms. So this is something that we often... This is the kind of thing that we often see in the Bible. Verse 8, Asaph says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. We we read this kind of thing in in 2 Samuel 7 when um, Nathan is coming to David and he is describing what God did for Israel. Um, he, 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 Nathan recounts how the Lord says in 2 Samuel 7, verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So often in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are likened to a tree or a vine that the Lord has planted. So you may think of Isaiah 5 here where the Lord had a vineyard on a very fertile hill and he cleared it of stones and he built a hedge around it and then he planted this vine and he expected the vine to bear good fruit and instead it only bore stinking, rotten fruit. So we get the same imagery here where Asaph says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, that's probably the Mediterranean Sea, and its shoots to the river, that's probably a reference to the Euphrates River, and this is probably a hyperbolic way of describing the extent of the kingdom under Solomon, where Solomon has conquered all this territory from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. But then verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? And this, I think, is is a, a poetic and symbolic way to describe what Psalm 79 was talking about. The walls have been broken down, the enemy army has come in, and they've killed the fruit of Israel, the the young people. They've killed the people. It's interesting, too, how the same two questions in Psalm 79, look at Psalm 79, verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? That's the same question that we saw in Psalm 80 in in verse 4. How long will you be angry? And then look at Psalm 79, verse 10. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Now we get the same why question in Psalm 80, verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? And then he describes the foreign nations in terms of an unclean animal, a pig. You know, Jews, Jews don't eat pork, right? Well, the boar has come into the vineyard, this unclean animal, the foreign non-Jews, The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. So symbolically, Israel being defeated by her neighbors is like the wall of a vineyard being broken down so that this wild boar, this unclean pig, can come in, and along with all these unclean insects, and they start devouring the fruit that that really is is for for God's glory, but because of their sin, and here I think in verse 12, if we think about this question, why then have you broken down its walls? You know, Asaph wrote Psalm 78 also, and Psalm 78 is this long rehearsal of Israel's sin. So I think Asaph knows the answer to the why question. Asaph knows why God's discipline is being visited on Israel. So again, I think this brings us back to the motivation for the why question. I think the, just as the how long question is meant to, to call on the Lord and say, won't you turn and be merciful to us? I think the why question is also an appeal to God's compassion. So what, what's really at, at work here is Asaph's knowledge of God's love for God's people. That's why he's crying out how long. That's why he's crying out, why? Because he knows that God loves his people. And, and, you know, this is really a mystery. It's a mystery that an infinite, omniscient, holy God would set his everlasting love on sinners. It's, it's amazing. I would not, if, I were an inf- I, if I were an infinite, holy God, I do not think I would be motivated to love sinners. And yet this is who God is. This is his character. It is the character of God that he is loving. And it is to that character of God that he is marked by his steadfast love, his hesed. It is to that that Asaph is appealing when he cries out, how long and why? Why have you done this? 
And then in verse 14, he says, turn again, O God of hosts. And uh, I said this is similar to the refrain in verses 3 and 7, because the word turn, it's the Hebrew word shuv, which is rendered in verse 3 and verse 7 as restore us. So it's the same uh, term, but in verses 3 and verse 7, he's asking for God to restore the people. In verse 14, he uses the same term, shuv, but he wants God to be the one who turns, as opposed to uh, causing the people to be returned to their good fortune. So he says, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. And now at this point, in verses 15 through 19, Asaph does something that is absolutely fascinating with the image of the vine. Because to this point, when he says in verse 8, you brought a vine out of Egypt, he's been talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was the vine. The nation of Israel was brought out of Egypt and planted in the land. But look at what he says in verse 15. Turn again, O God of hosts, verse 14. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. At this point, Asaph, he, he, he stops talking about the vine as the nation, and he starts talking about the individual son of God. So there's a sense in which the nation was God's son. Exodus 4, 22 and 23, go and say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn son, let my son go that they may worship me. And so the nation is God's son, but there's also an individual who, who is God's son. And that's the king from David's line. And interestingly, you know, he had referred to Benjamin um, up in verse 2. And now in um, verse 17, he's going to say, let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Benjamin means the son of my right hand. And it's almost like the psalmist is saying, let your hand be upon your own Benjamin, the son of your right hand. So the psalmist, Asaph, is appealing to God that God would have regard for the king from David's line, the stock that your right hand planted, verse 15, the son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. And then verse 17, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand. We uh, were talking yesterday morning during Sunday school about Psalm 110 and how the Lord said uh, to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, so the man of God's right hand is, I contend, the future king from David's line. Also, he's referred to here in verse 17 as the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. This picks up what we just saw in verse 15, the son whom you made strong for yourself. And here, the son of man, this recalls Psalm 8, doesn't it? And, and I'd like to, to look with you at Psalm 8 for just a moment. And um, so if, if you would turn there with me, and we'll consider this reference to the son of man. Um, and as you turn there, I just want to note that um, if we were to... If, if we all had the ability to read Hebrew really, really fluently, and if we were able to, to read straight through from Psalm 1 in Hebrew through Psalm 8, we would see many, many words that would link Psalms 1 through Psalm 8. So, and, and we would come away with the sense of, 
All these psalms are talking about the same thing with the same words. And, you know, we could see these, this same kind of link word connections in English, but sometimes those words are so small and they seem so insignificant and we don't even notice that they're there. But all these psalms are using the same terminology. And, and I'm saying that because I think that Psalm 8 is in many ways talking about the same thing that Psalm 2 was talking about. The Lord making this promise to the, the, the future king from David's line. As for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Psalm 8, um, it begins this famous statement, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength. Have you ever thought about why the psalmist would say this? This is a psalm of David. Why would David say, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength? I'm going to give you my pet theory. This may be something quirky about me, but here's my pet theory. When Adam and Eve sinned, the punishment, you know, for eating the fruit of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And then God's enemy, notice how it says in verse 2 there, to still the enemy, singular, and the avenger. The, the, the enemy, he, he induces them, tempts them to sin. And when they sin, his response, I think, is, I got them. Now he's got to put them to death. Now I'm going to be in control of this world. And the Lord's response to that is, actually, serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he will crush your head. So it's, it's almost like God says, oh yeah, Satan, you know what's going to happen? This woman's going to have a baby, and that baby is going to spell the end of you. I'm inclined to think that that informs David saying here, out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. And then he goes on, he says there in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And when he says what is man, he, he uses a, a word for, the, for man that is enosh. And, and the reason I'm, I think this is significant is because um, Adam, as you know, had a son named Seth. And then this is all in Genesis 5. And then Seth had a son named Enosh. And then Enosh's name seems to have become one of the words for mankind. So, you know, he's the third man born, at least according to that genealogy. And so his name becomes a way of becoming, uh, referring to mankind. If you've studied Hebrew, you may remember that the plural of Ish is Anashim. And Anashim is a plural form of Enosh. So the plural word men actually comes also from Enosh's name. So he says, what is Enosh that you're mindful of him and the son of man? And here we have the Bain Adam that you care for him. Okay, so when you put all this together, you've got Adam and then you've got the son of Adam, the Bain Adam, that would be Seth. And then you've got Enosh referenced there. And, and you know, it's not as apparent in English, but in Hebrew, these, these words evoke those names, and we are dealing with poetry, which often has multiple levels of meaning. You know, it's not an engineering textbook. It's not, it's not a mathematics book. So I, I think that David does mean to, um, to refer to this line of descent, Adam, Seth, 
Enosh, and that line continues down to Abraham, down to Judah, down to David, and then eventually to Jesus. And this, I think, would confirm the idea that in verse 2, David is thinking of Genesis 3.15. Then he says in verse verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So dominion, this is Genesis 1.28, Let them have dominion over... Uh, the the uh, beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea here in uh, Psalm 8, verses 7 and 8. Um, the order of the animals here in Psalm 8, 7 and 8 reverses the order of the animals in Genesis 1, 28, but it's the same animals. So again, I think that I think the dominion that David has in view is the dominion granted to Adam in Genesis 1, 28. And all this... I'm saying all this because I think this reference to, to the Son of Man in Psalm 8, verse 4, is not merely a reference to humanity, but to the Davidic king. And, and I think that reading is confirmed by Psalm 80, verse 17, Let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. So think about what's being prayed for here. The psalmist, Asaph is calling on the Lord to, at the end of verse 14, have regard for, and then he starts talking about the Son whom God has made strong, strong for himself, the man of God's right hand in verse 17, the Son of Man. Let your hand be on him. And the result of this, verse 18, is, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us. O Lord of God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. When you put all this together, Asaph is praying that God would show favor to the future king from David's line such that that prayer that recurs from verse 3 to verse 7 to verse 19, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. That would be realized through the exaltation of the future king from David's line. So Asaph is, in a way, he's praying, Lord, would you exalt the Messiah? Exalt the Messiah so that we will all be restored. And here again, we should pray as Asaph prays. Because if, if, if we here want to be motivated to greater holiness, that will come to, through the exaltation of Christ in our lives. That will come through our realization of His greatness and our increased appetite for His glory. And if, as we pray, if, if our congregations, your congregation, the congregation at Kenwood, faithful Bible-believing congregations everywhere, if Christ is exalted among them, they will become evangelistic magnets. People will will know that they are Christians by their love. They will see in them the glory of Christ realized. We should pray as Asaph prays. And it's also very, I think it's inestimably significant that the language that's here about the vine is language that Jesus himself used in in John 15. So I think think that Psalm 80 is significant for Jesus saying in, in John 15, I am the true vine. This this would be a way for Jesus to say, I'm the son of God. I'm the true Israel. I'm the one that Asaph was praying God would would, uh, have regard for and let his hand be upon. 
And you remember what, what Jesus said in that context. He said, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. And he said, apart from me, I think uh, Pastor Dan prayed this yesterday, apart from me, or maybe it was referenced in the conversation, I can't remember, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And then Jesus goes on to say, abide in me, and I will abide in you. And then he says, if, if my words abide in you, then you will abide in me, and you will bear fruit. Fruitfulness comes from our connectedness to the vine. And connectedness to the vine looks like the Word of God dwelling richly within us. So we want to we pray as Asaph prays. We want to call on the Lord to restore us, to let His face shine upon us. And then at the end of the psalm, we want to pray that He would have regard for Christ, that He would let His hand be upon the man of His right hand, the Son whom He made strong for Himself, that He might give us life, verse 18, that we might call upon His name. This is a great hope. It's a hope that will never fail us. And, and we have this, the, the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, he speaks of the way that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he says, and this hope does not put us to shame. This is a hope that will not fail. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the assurance of your word. And Lord, we thank you for the continuity of of the faith of people like Asaph and David and Isaiah and Peter and all of us here tonight, Lord. We pray that you would assure us that our hope in you will not fail. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us people who know the greatness of what you've promised. People who, who know that these, these things that would lure us away they offer only a fleeting pleasure. And Lord, make us like Moses, who knew that all the wealth of Egypt was not to be compared with the reproach of Christ. And make us like him, willing to leave uh, all of that luxury and glory and splendor that is merely worldly, that we might be identified with the Lord Jesus and his people that we might have a reward that is lasting. Lord, we pray that you would do this work in our hearts, make our hope as big as your promises, and we pray that you would cause our lives to be pure in a way that is worthy of your great name. We commit ourselves to you. We pray that you would bless us. We pray that your face would shine upon us, that you would restore us, that we might be saved. In Christ's name, amen. I'm happy to open this up if you want to discuss anything, if you have any questions you want to pursue. Yeah, Ian. Yes. Yes. So we should take that to be a, a clear 
Yes, I think that's right. And, and just going along with that, I think that the fact that, that God identified the nation as his son, and then when he made the promise to David, Exodus 4, 22 and 3, let my son go, Israel is my firstborn son. And then he tells David in 2 Samuel 7, he will be a son to me. This establishes a kind of dynamic between the nation as son and the individual king as son. And it's that that dynamic between the one and the many that really, I mean, it starts from, it starts in Genesis where God is saying to Abraham, I will make your seed like the stars of heaven. So he's talking about a group of people. But then he also says, um, he says things like your seed will, um, uh, it's 20, Genesis 22, 17, I, I, the language, the exact statement uh, your offspring, your seed, shall possess the gate of his enemies, singular. So there's, there's this multiplied seed, but then there's this individual seed. And, and that, that kind of dynamic happens all over the Old Testament. Another thing that I think goes along these same lines is, um, you know, in Isaiah 6, verse 13, um, Isaiah has just been told to go and harden the hearts of the people, and his response is, how long? You know, it's like, surely this is not your only plan. This is not going to last forever. How long is that going to last? And God basically says, until exile, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and the land is a desolate waste. And, and the people are scattered, driven far away. But then he says, um, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, it will again be subject to burning. So he's likening the nation to a tree that's going to be chopped down and then the stump is going to be burned. But then at the end of the chapter, the last words of Isaiah 6 are, the holy seed is the stump. And then Isaiah 11, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. So there's this, again, an identification between Jesus and the, and the stump, you know, um, Jesus is going to be this one shoot that's going to come from, or the, the Messiah, the future king from David's line, is going to be the, this one sh- the most important shoot from that, that stump that remains of the chopped down nation. And, and then, you know, I think you could point to other things that are along that, that, that kind of imagery in other places as well. Yeah, good question. Right. Yeah, great question. So um, Psalms Psalm 74 and 79 both seem to describe um, attacks on Jerusalem um, and, and like devastation visited upon the temple. And in, in 2 Chronicles 12, verses 1 through 12, and in 1 Kings 14, verse 25, we read about, I think, it, I think it's Shishak, king of Egypt, who invaded Jerusalem and he broke into the temple and he plundered the temple. And I'm inclined to think, and that was, that was um, I, can't re- I don't remember the king reigning at that time. Um, 2 Kings 14, 25, let me just see where that sits. Um, that would be during the reign of... of uh, Amaziah, um, and uh, 
First oh, Kings 14.25, sorry. I got the wrong book. First Kings 14.25. Did I say second? I said second. Sorry. Um, let's see. Yeah, that's Rehoboam's reign. And it is um, Shishak, king of Egypt. And he, and he plunders uh, the temple, uh, takes treasures. So this would be, I mean, Rehoboam is right after Solomon. And then, and then eventually in Psalm 89, you get what looks to me like the destruction of Jerusalem. When um, in verse 39, the, the crown is defiled in the dust. Verse 40, all the walls of the city are breached. And verse 44, God has cast his throne, that is David's throne, to the ground. And so it looks like the Davidic king has been removed and the city has been destroyed in Psalm 89. And at that point, too, the temple would have been burned down. So I think Psalm 74 and 79 reflect earlier periods when when the temple was plundered and damaged by enemies. Yeah, good question. Yeah, Ian. Oh, absolutely. Have at it. So I, I struggle to, to pray this way. Hmm. I, I, I find myself reluctant to like pray that God's will would be changed or his, that he would, he would move in a different direction than he is. Hmm. That seems uh, uh, presumptuous. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be fatalistic about God's will, right? And, and I think if we just, I think it's ungodly simply to, to resign ourselves, you know? And so I actually, you know, when Moses, God says to Moses on two occasions, um, Exodus 32 and then again in Numbers 14, God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you. And on both occasions, Moses says, no, Lord, don't do, you must not do this. And, and then there's a similar kind of episode when a prophet comes to Eli and says to Eli, I'm done with your house. And I think the author of Samuel has set this narrative up to remind his readers of, of God saying to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel, which creates the expectation that Eli is going to act like Moses and say, have regard for your name. And instead, Eli says, he is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And I think that's a failure of faith on Eli's part. So um, the, pr- the prayers that I think um, Asaph is praying are prayers that are ultimately responding to God's promises. Like, Lord, you promised it would be this way, and it's not this way. And we need you to change our hearts so that we'll live in such a way that you can bless us like you promised you would. And we want your face to shine upon us and bless us so that we can be restored and realize everything that you've promised to us so i think that's the the kind of dynamic that's at work in in psalm 80 in particular um but but yeah the the um it's the promises of god that are informing us appealing to god's will and then there are these fascinating stories in the bible like this story of um you remember this occasion when um David is fleeing Jerusalem after Absalom has revolted. He's done his, his revolt. And David is leaving the city, 
and he hears that this guy named Ahithophel, who was really, really sharp, he hears that Ahithophel has gone over to Absalom. And he immediately prays, O Lord, thwart for me the good counsel of Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel was really shrewd, really wise. Um, So he prays, thwart thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel. And then this guy Hushai the Archite comes out to meet David and wants to go with him. And David says, no, no, no. You'll be a burden to me if you go with me. Go back into the city and oppose Ahithophel's counsel. So David prays and then he acts. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Ahithophel gives his counsel. And then Absalom says, all right, let's hear from Hushai. And Hushai says, this time the counsel of Ahithophel is not good. And he, gives, he persuades Absalom. Ahithophel sees that his counsel is not followed, and he goes and sets his house in order, and then he hangs himself. And then the author of Samuel says, this is, this, this is one of those statements that's just, it gives me chills. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Then here's the author's explanation. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. David prayed for it. David took action. And then we learn that God had ordained that this would happen. And I think every step in that is necessary. David's prayer is necessary. David's action is necessary. And yes, God had foreordained that it would happen. But David's prayer was a means to bring about God's appointed end. Yes? I think that's true. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the first thing you said is we don't want to just go with our feelings. And, and in response to that, I would say, um, right, we don't want to go with our sinful feelings, but what we want is to have our feelings shaped by the hope. So we want, we want to be... We want everything in our life to line up so that the ultimate objective, our understanding of, of what God has said he's going to accomplish, is brought into, our, into line with our understanding of why God created us in the first place and what he built us to do. And then we want to understand that the, the sort of boundaries that God has placed upon us are to enable us to function as he intended us to function, which is in accordance with what he has said he's going to accomplish. 
And so we want to, I think we want to pray more and more that our emotions and our feelings would align with, with um, God's purposes and God's um, reactions to things um, and God's own, God's own heart on, on all these matters. And, and if that's the case, then, you know, I think it was you and I that were talking last night about Jesus weeping over, over Jerusalem, over the death of Lazarus. Lazarus. And, um, and when, we, when we encounter things that are out of step with the way that God intended them to be and people experience untimely death, and it's appropriate, I think, to lean into those emotions and to cry out to God, how long and why? Even if we know the answer to those questions at some level, we're still appealing to God's compassion and to hit what he said he made this whole thing for to begin with. I just want to say thank you all. It's been a joy to be with you. Appreciate you coming out tonight.